0: Good to see all of you. How you doing? How's your summer? All right. <laughs> mixed, mixed results in there. But uh, anyway, glad you're here. My summer's been great so far. We already had our two-week family vacation. We took off the day that school got out and went out to the middle of Wyoming and spent some time out there in God's beautiful creation riding horses. So our whole family, I think we did about 100 miles or so over the week of uh, riding horses. It was great. Family loved it. We spent some time in the Grand Tetons, and then on our way to Yellowstone is when we got notice that it was closed, that they had the biggest storm in like 150 years, the whole existence of the park, and we could not go in, and so we kind of were out the gate pretty discouraged. We had to make kind of alternative plans, and instead of old faithful, we went to Vegas. Uh, What else are you going to do? You know, what else is there? So I um, spent a couple days in Vegas and then um, saw some shows and then came home, but it was a great vacation. 2,200 miles on the car and uh, we were safe, God took care of us. The funny thing is when we do road trips, what we do is you know, we have one of these little DVD players in the car, it's behind me, so when I'm driving I can't see it, but I can hear it. And I, we play these old movies because there's, it's not Blu-ray or anything like that, so we have to play the old movies. And these are kind of movies that I grew up with or have seen many times. So it's fun for me. I just kind of listen to it and kind of envision it in my head. But we introduced the family to an old movie from 1993, uh, probably a little-known movie called "So I Married an Axe Murderer." Anybody remember that? Mike Myers. It was before Austin Powers, all that kind of stuff. Uh, in this movie, his name is is Charlie McKenzie. And he's a single guy. He's dated several times, but he always gets to that point in the relationship where things are really good, everybody likes who he's dating, but he finds some reason, usually a paranoid reason, on why to break up. So in one of the opening scenes, he's with his friend Tony, and his friend Tony is asking him about all these, the string of girls that he's broken up with, and he's asking him about them. He says, what about Sherry? What was wrong with Sherry? And Charlie says, she was a thief. Like, what do you mean she's a thief? she's a kleptomaniac. Like, what did she steal? She says, she stole my cat. Ever since we started dating, I never saw my cat. So I broke up with her. You know, come on, what, what about Jill? Jill was great. He says, Jill was in the Costa Nova mafia. She was in the mafia. He says, how do you know that? He says, well, I know that because she never told, the whole time we we're dating, she never told me what she did for a living. He's like, said, Charlie, she was unemployed. She had no job. And he says, well, that's the perfect cover-up. Right? That's what every mafia says, I have no job, right? So I broke up with her. And he says, okay, what about Pam? We loved Pam. Charlie thought for a minute, said, she smelled like soup. What do you mean she smelled like soup? Exactly like beef vegetable soup. So we broke up. Uh, Just listening to all these reasons, it reminds me, and maybe it reminds some of you, of these breakups that we've had in the past, right? Most of us have experienced the pain of a breakup. There might be a few out here that never had that. You're the lucky ones. But most of us have that, and it hurts, right? Whatever the reason, whether somebody thinks we're a kleptomaniac or in the mafia or we smell like soup, whatever the reason is, it hurts because it's a little bit of rejection, right? We're rejected from somebody that we like or we used to. Things have changed, and now that person is out of our life. They're gone. Some of us have experienced that kind of rejection or that breakup from even closer, from a spouse, right? from a, a child maybe, or even a, a parent, You know, where you feel like that parent walked away on you. And those are deep scars. Right? They really do hurt. They hurt us deep down. But today I want to ask this question. And we know that people from time to time will walk out on our life. But what about God? What about God? Has God ever broken up with you? Or might God break up with you? Might there be a reason that God at some point just says, all right, we're done, we're through. All right, this, this, whatever we had, it's over. Does God break up with us? I mean, think about it for you. And I'm talking to the person who's a Christian, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. They, they've, At some point, they said, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's my sins, Lord. Please take them. All right? I confess them, and let me follow you. We know that nobody's perfect, and we know that many of you, probably all of us we've, who have said that, we've had moments that we're not proud of. All right? We've had some bad moments. In those bad moments, those worst moments... What is God doing? Is God kind of just shaking his head? Like, I cannot believe we're doing this again. Or worse, has he just kind of thrown up his hands and turned his back on you? Or has he even just walked away, saying, we're done here? Does God break up with us? Is that part of our relationship that we need to be worried about? Throughout the summer, uh, at least over this month, we've been looking at some memory verses. Uh, we're, we're calling this Committed to Memory, and we are challenging us to exercise those, those muscles in our mind to memorize Scripture. Over, uh, ever since the, kind of the invention of this cell phone, I think most of our memories have been shot. Right? We don't have to memorize any phone numbers. We probably don't even know our kids' phone numbers. I don't. I think I could recognize them, but I don't know them. Right? We don't have to memorize directions to anywhere because we have navigation. When we come to church, we don't even have to remember our Bible because we have it on our device. Right, The only thing we have to remember is our dang passwords. Username and passwords, which takes up pretty much all my my memory. But we've said, hey... This summer, let's challenge us. Let's, let's kind of get our minds engaged. Let's memorize some scripture. And so we've been doing that, and we've been teaching on these scriptures, and we're encouraging you to memorize them over the week. Hopefully you have. We've looked at a verse that talked about our salvation, right? We're not saved by our own works, but we're saved by grace, Right? God has saved us by grace. We've looked at a, a verse about uh, walking in the Spirit. Then since we are part of the Spirit, let us walk with the Spirit. We have the fruit of the Spirit that should be grown in our lives. Last week, we talked about uh, having our anxiety replaced with, with peace, right? Don't, work, don't be anxious about anything. Give everything to Him. And it talks about the peace of God, which transcends all understandings, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. We've been talking about these, and hopefully these have been verses that have been in your mind, and they've encouraged you throughout this week. We have one final verse before we move on to a new series, and this verse comes from Romans chapter 8. It's a powerful verse. In fact, uh, N.T. Wright talks about it. and He says, the end of Romans 8 deserves to be written on letters of fire on the living tablets of our hearts. That's a a pretty strong underline and highlight, right? This These verses should be written in fire and emblazed on our hearts. Uh, Stott, another commentator, says these are the verses that are are like a pillow for Christians to rest their weary heads on. Whatever it is, whether it's uh, verses emblazed on your heart or a pillow to rest on, these verses are here to comfort you. And so I, I want to work through these passages. I want to work through these verses so that you can go out of here being encouraged with the truth that God's love is eternal. God's love is everlasting. God will never break up with you. He'll never turn his back on you. He will never walk away, throw his hands up, and move on. He loves you. He loves you completely. He loves you eternally. This is what I want to convince you on this truth. Be convinced that God's love is eternal, that he loves you passionately now and forever. Amen? Heavenly Father, may you guide us in our time as we begin this passage and we walk through it. May you convince us of your passionate love. Lord, persuade us and convince us and show us that there's nothing we can do to shake your love from us. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. So today we'll be in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, and we'll kind of go back a little bit into some of the other verses in Romans 8. But uh, please join us along. Join along. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that God's everlasting love is convincing. This is the thing that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, need to be convinced about. It's got to be deep in our hearts, deep in our minds. We've got to come to it each and every day. This is why this is one of our memory verses. Paul was convinced by this. He, he was persuaded throughout his life. He took some time throughout his life as he's writing this letter To say, not only have I thought through it, but it is true. And let me tell you what I believe. He says in verse 38 For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor powers, right? Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was convinced. He was convinced that God loves him now, and he always will, that nothing can shake God from his love, right? We We need to become and remain convinced that nothing in life, there's nothing in life, there's nothing in death, there's nothing that's alive or dead in this world or outside of this world, seen or unseen, nor anything else which can take God's love from us. Nothing. Why is he convinced? Well, he had a history of hostility towards Jesus. Remember earlier in his life, I mean, he loved God and he pursued God. But when this whole uh, character Jesus came about, he was died and resurrected and gone, there were these followers of Jesus, and Paul would not stand for that. He loved God so much that he went out and he found these Christians. He persecuted them. He would go out and find them. They were hiding in secret. He'd search for them. He'd bring them. He'd bring them to jail. There was even the story of the first martyr of the church, Stephen, where Paul, then Saul, was standing there watching, giving approval. This is the kind of guy he was. All right, Totally persecuting and fighting against Jesus to the point where when Jesus did call him, On the Damascus Road, when he just showed up and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But instead of judging him or, or getting even, he called him into his own. He shed his love on him and brought him into his family. So Paul knows some of this. How can someone like that be forgiven? And then once they're forgiven, how can they stay in the love of God? He had spent his life thinking about this and pursuing this question. And here he is in jail near the end of his life and he's writing and he's saying, this is what I believe, that I'm convinced of this. He gives in this verse 10 things, 10 things that, that some people might think could separate. That if these 10 things happen or they're in their lives, that it might be proof that God has stopped loving them. He says, can death separate God's love? So, you know, we... We try so hard to be healthy, but we die, whether we get sick or an accident or just old age, whatever it is. We all, at some point, we die. And is that evidence that God has pulled his love from us, from when someone young dies or a tragedy or whatever? Is that evidence that we're being punished, that God said, no, I don't love you, and therefore that's why it's happening? Can death, can life, any of these, uh, just the calamities in life that happen, that come our way, do those things show that God has is given up on us or is fighting against us, All right? The, the, just the events of your life, you know, whether they're silly or comical, but you just say, God, what is going on? Why do you hate me right now? I had a good friend who... Uh, Throughout his life, he he always was convinced that God hated him because whenever he moved, that's where Caltrans started building the, you know, redoing the roads, you know, and the freeways and all of that. And he was like, I'm living in Southern California, and everywhere I move, Caltrans moves right next to me. God must hate me. He had a pretty convincing argument. Like, it really was true. But we had to work with him and convince him that that does not mean that God does not love you. But that's the kind of thing, that calamities in life, do those things mean that God hates us? He talks about the present or the future, anything that's happening right here, right now, or maybe the things in the future. Would those things stop God's love from us? One thing, we, we, we all know what we have right now, where we're living and what we're doing, but what we don't know is the mistakes and the, just the terrible things that we're going to do in the future. The things that we're going to say, the people we're going to offend, all that kind of stuff, we don't know. What that is, but God knows, and He says, not even those things, not even these dumb things that you're gonna do a month, two months, years from now, are enough to take my love from you. Now, He talks about, you know, powers, right? Science, earth, ancestor, spirits, anything that we look at and we say these are different powers, those things can't shake God's love. The height or depth, right? There's a good thing that He's talking about here, like this. The astrology, you know, back then there was a lot of people ascribed a lot of powers and a lot of fate to the stars. And he says, those things aren't going aren't gonna to control God's love. He's not guided by that. There's nothing in the skies. There's nothing below the ground. There's nothing east or west. None of these things can take away God's love. And I look at that as I just think, like, what, what if? Right? This seems silly, but I know Congress spent some time looking at it. What if there are aliens what if there's people from another planet, another galaxy that come? Would that change God's love for us? What are earthquakes, all right? Floods, does that mean that God is punishing us, that he's done with us? No, none of these things. So Paul's, as he's looked at all areas of life, everything, pass forward, every direction, he said none of these things can take away God's love. I'm convinced of it. So he's convinced of it. He goes back throughout this chapter and he tells some reasons why. He asks some questions. And to each question he's answering, he's giving evidence for why we cannot fall away from God's love. So we'll work quickly through these in our remainder of our time. Five things. He says, God will never leave you because you are not condemned. If we look at verse 1 and verse 34, this word condemn comes in here. It says in verse 1, chapter 1, one of my favorite verses, he says, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, Those who are following Jesus, who are found in Christ, there is no condemnation. You're not guilty. He says it again in verse 34. He says, who then is the one who condemns? Who condemns? Is God condemning you? He says, no one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who's been raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. All right, no one who's in Christ is condemned. What would condemn someone? What would condemn someone before God would be their sins? All right, sins are things that can condemn. These are the things that we've rebelled against God. All right, we've, we've made ourselves gods. We've, we've followed our own way. Those are our own sins. But in Romans 8, 3, it says, God condemned these sins. God condemned the sins. He put them on Jesus, and they've been dealt with. So when you are in Christ Jesus, when you've come to follow him, and when you said, Lord Jesus, I just want to follow you, uh, please forgive me for my sins, all those sins are gone. They're condemned. They've been put on Christ. He was a sacrifice, and he died. And then he says, more than that, in verse 34, now he's raised to life. God has seen the the sacrifice. And he says, I'm pleased with that sacrifice. I'm bringing that sacrifice back to life. God's been glorified. He says, where is Jesus right now? He's sitting at God's right hand, the seat of honor, the seat of victory. And what is Jesus doing? He's interceding for you. What does that mean? It means he's praying for you. He's lifting you up to the Father. He's sitting there right now seeing, see that guy, Jimmy? He's mine. I love him. I died for him. He's received my my, uh, justification. He's good. He's doing that for each one of us. So who can condemn you? No one. God's not condemning. There's this great story in John 8. It's a story of this lady who was brought before Jesus She was caught in the midst of having an affair, right? She was with someone who wasn't her husband, and they brought this lady. We don't know about what happened to the guy, but they brought this lady to Jesus. They're trying to trick him. They're saying, hey, the law says that she should die, right, for this affair. What do you say? If he said, yes, that she should die according to that, then he's going to lose favor, right? Uh, His marketing and PR will take a hit with the people, If he says, no, she shouldn't be condemned, then he's going against the law. And then he's going to take uh, an attack from others. But he says this. He says, yes, you're right. This law says that she deserves to die. So here's what we'll do. The one who has never sinned, they can throw the first stone. All these men were ready to stone her. They had big rocks, not little pebbles, but rocks. And one by one, you hear the the rocks not being thrown, but being dropped. And the men walk away. And this had to take some time. Probably felt like eternity for this lady who's expecting to get hit by rocks. But these rocks follow the ground. And then Jesus says this. He says, who is left to condemn you? And she says, no one. They all left. The actual answer is you, Jesus. You could condemn me. But he says, neither do I condemn you. But now go and sin no more. So this is a powerful story of what God has done. When you are in Christ Jesus, you you are free from condemnation. It's gone. There's no one to condemn you. So that's his first reason. That's the first thing he says when, when we look at the reasons why I'm convinced is because that condemnation is gone. No longer here. He continues in verse 31. He says, God will never leave you because God is for you. He's not against you. God is for you. How many of us think at one point in our lives or at different times that God is against us? But Paul says, he's for you. He says, what then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? These didn't just ask the question simply like, who can be against us? Because that could be answered lots of ways. The world can be against us. All right, the world is, is against us. Nowhere in history have I seen the world say, hey, you know what we really need is we really need more Christians, you know, kind of telling us how to run our lives and how to be ethical and how to love each other. The world doesn't do that. The world is against us. So the world is against us. Who else is against us? We are against us. All right, Paul talks about this in, in Galatians 5, which we studied a couple weeks ago, and he talks about in Romans 7, this, this flesh that keeps, it is within us that has not been put to death completely. All right, we should crucify our des- desires and passions, but this, this flesh keeps coming back and fighting against us. It keeps fighting against the Spirit, and what we want to do and follow Christ is not what we always do, and there's this war happening. So we're against ourselves. All right, certainly the devil and his demons are against us, right? They are against us. That's where the war is, all right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the spirit. That's where the battle is. We keep fighting against ourselves, but that's not the battle. The battle is up here. So if he were to ask, you know, who's against us, we could give all kinds of things, but that's not the question. He says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If the creator of the world, the sovereign God, is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you because he's got you. He's leading you. He's with you. No one is against us. In in the Old Testament, there's different places where it's these terrifying words you hear. It says, you know, I am against you, God says. And he says it to Assyria and Babylon and Egypt. He even says it to Israel, you know, when they had been following other gods and their shepherds were doing a bad job. He says, I'm against you. But in the New Testament, you never see those words for people who are identified with Christ. If you are identified with Christ, if you have put your faith in him, you will never see these words in the New Testament that say, I am against you. Because if God is against you and you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then God would be against his very own son. But he loves his son and you are in his son and his son is in you, so therefore he loves you. He is for you. Who can be against us? No one. He gives more evidence. He says, God will never leave you because God has given you his precious son. He's given you Jesus. Verse 32 says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give all things? He's, what he's arguing is from greater or lesser. He's saying, what's the most important thing to God? Who's the most precious person? That would be his son, Jesus. And he says he didn't even spare him. He didn't save him. Instead, he sent him to the cross, to earth, and then to the cross to condemn our sins, to, to take our sins upon us. And if he gave us Jesus, he's going to give us everything else, including his love. He'll never leave you because he's given Jesus, he's given everything. And if he's given the best, he's going to give everything else to us. The fourth thing is God will never leave you because God has justified you. Verse 33 keeps going. Another one of these questions. Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? Who will bring a charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Listen now, change kind of from what you were thinking to now go to a court of law. Imagine this as you're just thinking this through. See God as the judge. He's sitting there on the bench. And you see in the, on the one chair that you're sitting there. And the other, other lawyer is Satan. And he's, he's out ready to get you. And he is throwing out some convincing arguments on what you have done against God. Why God should not love you. Why he should not give his love upon you. And he's telling some, some shameful things. Secrets. Things in the past. Things that are happening now. He's given a very good argument. But then God turns to the witness stand and there is Jesus Christ. In that witness stand, Jesus says, here's the thing. All that stuff that Satan just said is probably true. But it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter because they're clothed in my robes. I wear the judge's robes. That person, you who are in Christ, are wearing my robes. The, the, the sins are gone. They're dealt with. They're not, they're not even in play here. All that matters is you receive my love. You receive my justification. And that's why Jesus, God says at the bench, you're right. You are justified. You are innocent. And when God justifies you, it doesn't matter what anybody else says doesn't matter what Satan is throwing out there. doesn't mean what your friends say, like, oh, you're not that good. I remember you in high school. I remember what you used to do, right? Or, or even yourself, you remember your own sins. You, you didn't just say, like, I'm so ashamed of my lack of desire. I'm ashamed of my, my response in worship. I'm so just, I'm given nothing. But even that is not enough to override what the judge has declared, that he has declared you justified. The last one he gives here is God will never leave you because God has just decided to love you. And he's decided to love you, and he's given you the victory. As he brings us all together, this is the kind of the climax of these verses. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the question. Who shall separate us? What? He gives out these... I don't know, five or six things, shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, all of these very hard things, all of these tough things that if we were to experience, we would say, oh, God is, is mad at me. He says, as it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered like sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. You're mega uh, conquerors, all right? Extreme conquerors. That we do have these things. We have trouble. We have hardship. But that does not mean that God has turned his back on us. If anybody could believe that, it would be Paul. Paul wrote kind of some like memoirs in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's kind of recounting his life. And here's what he says. He's like, I've been in prison. I've been flogged. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in dangers from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Can anybody else say that about their lives? I can't. Never once have I been beaten with rods. But he had nine times where he was whipped, beaten, or left for dead, covered with rocks. Nine times! If you looked at his body, I'm sure it's scarred, crazy. If he was walking, he didn't have a nice swagger. Instead, he had probably terrible limps. He's hurting. If anybody could say, God has turned their back on me all right, this is miserable, it would be him. But he's convinced that even in all those things, they're not God's punishment, they're him identifying with Christ. Him saying, just like sheep have been led to the slaughter, so I've been led to the slaughter. And just as Jesus has, I've been. I'm identifying with him. God is not mad. He's not turned his back. He hasn't broken up. No, instead, I'm a conqueror. I have victory in Christ. Paul was convinced. Are you convinced? Are you convinced that God loves you completely, like 100%, all the time, always, from now till the end of heaven, that you are loved? I want you to be convinced. That's where Paul was. And as he's looking at us and encouraging us as we live the Christian life, he finds us of great importance to say because of all the thought theology that he's already talked about, you are loved totally. What would it be like if we had a church of people that were convinced of this? If we were truly convinced that we were loved that way, I think it would look a little different. Think one, we'd, we'd stop trying to prove our faithfulness, improve our devotion, right? We have this idea that there's things that we can do to make God love us more. There's things that we could do to make God love us less. And so we're always in this battle of how do we, how do we try to move away from those things and do more things that God would be pleased about. But here's the deal. We don't have to prove that. You're loved completely. So we don't have to live our lives out of trying to prove and gain more love like we have through our lives with our friends and with our families and our parents and all that. We've always been doing this. We don't have to do that. And if we're not doing that, I think our evangelism would look totally different. I think we'd be more eager to share about this love that we have. Many years ago, someone told me, they said, you talk about the things and the people you love. We do. And if we truly knew we were loved, and if we love back, we would talk much more eagerly to our friends about this love that we have in Jesus Christ. I think we would just share stuff, because we're talking about someone we love, not a boss that we work for. If we were convinced of this, I think that would change our evangelism. I think it would even change our own holiness. Some might hear this and say, well, if God loves me, then I can do whatever I want I can go sin like crazy. But for the person who truly understands this, I don't think they're gonna do that. Instead, you're gonna say, I've been loved so deeply. I'm gonna this person who loves me, I wanna know them and I wanna serve them and I wanna love them and follow them. And I think our holiness would take on a whole new level of enjoyment and excitement. And, and we'd understand what it means to sit and walk and abide with Jesus if we were convinced of these things. So Paul was convinced, but that doesn't matter about Paul. What it matters is you. Have I convinced you? Have I shared a little bit from the scriptures? Just say, gosh, I know we do some things that we're not proud of, we're we're ashamed of, but those things don't take away God's love. The beauty of this passage is it doesn't show us that it's it's on us to love God because our love is frail, it's fickle, it's fragile, we're sensitive, all that kind of stuff. The weight here is not on us, it's on God. And God says, "My love is faithful. My love is true. My love is trustworthy. My love is everlasting." And just as I love Jesus, I've loved him for eternity, and I'll love him for eternity forever. If you are in Christ, I will love you with that same commitment and that same passion. To me, that's some of the best news we can hear. Amen?